You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. This is the introduction to Sacred Rhythms. Okay, so to get started this morning, um, I want to play a little word association game with you. Do you know what that is? Like I say something and you say the first thing that comes to your mind? What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Okay, so when I say the term spiritual disciplines, like what is that reaction for you? Can be anything. Might be a feeling, it might be a noun, it might be a, what is it? Chore. Chore? Thank you. What did you say? Chore. Mm hmm. Regimen. Regimen. Options. Difficult. Study and prayer. Study and prayer. Closeness. Closeness. Challenging. Challenging. Okay. So you hear the tone, right? And I think that's what a lot of us feel, which is why we're here. (laughs) We want to take that negative connotation. We want to, first of all, be honest about it. And then we want to take that negative connotation and reframe it according to God's heart. Like, what is the point of all this? What are we just supposed to be doing? So, um, if I ask you this, though, what word would describe your ideal reaction or your ideal experience? Delight. Hmm. Excitement. Mm-hmm. Fulfilling. Fulfilling. Consistency. Consistent. Closeness. Closeness. Thank you. That's really good. So what we want to do is reframe, okay? We want to move in that direction. It's not a light switch, but we want to move in that direction. This really does begin with a renewing of our minds according to what God has told us in his word. Okay, so if you want to open to your teaching notes page, there's an outline on the left, and then there is a blank page on the right. So this is your space for today. So this is the first thing uh, that you'll see on that outline, okay? The goal of this class is to help you understand spiritual disciplines as gifts from God that enable us to know him, to enjoy him, and to be changed by him. To know him, to enjoy him, and to be changed by him. Now, to kind of get our thoughts started this morning. I want you to think about an area of your life where you either are or have been in the past very disciplined about something. Okay? And why was that? So maybe you're the type of person that runs five miles a day, and if you are, that's excellent. That's not me. I'm probably never going to do that. But think outside the box. Like, what routine do you stick to because of the benefit that it brings you or your household? This could be as simple as, like, running the dishwasher before you go to bed. Okay, so you wake up in the morning, can just load it all day. Something I'm trying to work on. Okay, so take like five minutes at your tables 
See if you can come up with it. It can be super simple. Don't feel stressed. What do you stick to and why? Okay, go ahead. Okay, let's bring it back together. Did everyone think of something? You can always fall back on brushing your teeth, right? <laughs> right? You all brush your teeth? Okay, great. Does anyone want to admit to having the weirdest discipline? Does anyone think they do something really obscure that they want to share with everyone? No? You're all normal? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but hopefully that kind of gets you thinking. We are disciplined about some things when we have some sort of benefit on the other side of it. So let's look at a definition for discipline. Um, a routine activity or regimen requiring an expenditure of time and or effort with the goal of improvement or well-being. Do you see those three parts? They're separated by commas, I believe. You have a routine activity, something that repeats, it's a habit. The second part is there's a cost, time, effort. And the third piece is that there's a goal or some sort of benefit on the other side of it. And the common denominator is this. We're willing to pay the cost, whether it be time or effort or money sometimes. Sometimes it's a sacrifice. We give up something to get something better. We're willing to pay the cost when we are convinced of the benefit. We're willing to pay the cost when we're convinced of the benefit. So I have a friend that has genetically bad cholesterol. And if he would walk in this room, you would never guess it because he's thin and he's healthy but his genetics just make this constant battle with his cholesterol. And he's been through all kinds of doctors. He's tried different medications. Nothing's working. So he did his own research and has developed this protocol of eating and exercise that I'm telling you is far beyond what any of us would be doing. Incredibly strict. And he has committed himself to doing this because his alternative is heart failure. So he has decided that the cost, in this case staying alive, is worth the effort. It's worth the time. That may be an extreme example, but we are constantly doing this cost-benefit analysis whether we realize it or not. It's often subconscious. So many benefits of being disciplined are not immediate. That's fairly normal. But when it comes to spiritual discipline, the benefit is often intangible. We can't necessarily see it, or touch it, or measure it. I'm not entirely sure that we can articulate what the benefit actually is sometimes. And if we're lacking direction or a goal, then these habits are going to feel burdensome at best and completely futile at worst. Donald Whitney says it this way, discipline without direction is drudgery. Have you felt that? I have. 
And this understandably makes us unwilling to pay the, the cost to persevere. So we want to take a minute to clearly state the goal. You guys have shared some of your ideas um, about what the ideal experience of being in relationship with the Lord, what these spiritual habits are supposed to be doing. You've shared some of those thoughts. And what I want to do is just take that and kind of boil it down. Um, this goal really does encapsulate all of those things. We need to clearly understand what the benefit is, and then secondly, why that benefit is worth the cost. So ultimately, the goal is holiness. That is the benefit or the direction of our discipline. And if you're like, eh, I don't really get that, like growth, maturity, closeness with the Lord, like that makes a lot more sense to me. Well, the fact of the matter is all of those things are wrapped up in this quality of holiness. And so we're going to walk through this. We're going to unpack this together. Our working definition of holiness will be this. Absolute moral purity and thereby separate and set apart from evil. So for God, this describes the essence of his character. 1 Samuel 2.2, there is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There's no rock like our God. And because of his infinite holiness, God is transcendent. That means he is so set apart from the rest of creation, so other than us. But for us, it becomes an imperative to be more and more like him. Growing in holiness means we're being more and more conformed to the image of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. But here's maybe the more important question. So why should we desire this? What's actually the benefit? Are we allowed to ask that question in church? <laughs> right? But like this is what we're subconsciously asking, even if we don't want to say it. It turns out that this holiness not only glorifies God and we're not just giving him our obligation, but it's actually for our good as well. So the simplest answer to this question is found in Hebrews 12, 14, where we read, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And maybe that's striking to you, but maybe it's not. I think there are a lot of reasons why that may not carry the weight that it should. But I would argue one of the biggest reasons we aren't motivated by this thought to pursue holiness so that we can see the Lord is because we're not living in the context of God's big story. So I grew up in the church and I professed Christ at a young age, eight years old. Okay, I've never not been in church my whole life. And I had an accurate but very limited view of the gospel. I understood I'm a sinner. I'm separated from God. And I can't do anything to fix that. Can't earn my way back. So yes, I understand I need Jesus to save me from my sins. So I accepted him as my Lord and Savior so that, listen to the benefits, my sins could be forgiven and I'd go to heaven when I die. Because I don't want to go to hell, right? Mm -hmm. So there's just this basic logic as a child. Well, yeah, that makes sense, and I do believe. So what to do in the meantime? 
so since Jesus has done so much for me, like I owe him, right? So I got to do all the right things. And I got to try to follow the rules. I got to read my Bible. got to pray. I got to go to church. Like this is what good Christians do, right? But do you hear the lack of direction? It's because there's a lack of context. So consider this instead. God created humanity with an intention to dwell among his people in kingdom. Think of the Garden of Eden, what we know of that. It's a beautiful place. People that bear God's image and they have a purpose to rule and reign over creation. But the absolute greatest part of Eden was that Adam and Eve could be in God's presence. That is how we were created to live. We were created to dwell with God face to face to know him, to enjoy him, and to live out the purpose that he's given us. But sin broke all of that, as you know. Humanity is now separated from a holy God, and we're unable to earn our way back into God's presence. And that's because we're not holy. He's so set apart in his perfection that we cannot bridge that gap. So this is why Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was necessary, right? He paid that price we could not pay to be forgiven our sins. But then the other part of that is he transfers all of the spiritual benefits of his holiness to us. That's how we are made right with God. So when we believe in him by faith, we receive his holiness or his righteousness as our own. So our greatest problem is not just that we're headed for hell. What that really means is that sin has condemned us to eternity apart from God's favorable presence. And we must be made holy to, to be with God, and we must be with God to be made whole. Your desire to be close to God now is grounded in this bigger narrative. This is why you feel that way. So I want you to have a visual of how our lives align with God's story. Will you look at the timeline on the notes page with me? This timeline represents God's redemptive story from Genesis to Revelation, the entirety of the Bible. So we're going to start by labeling those dots. These are kind of our mile markers along the way. So the first dot on the left, go ahead and write creation, the beginning of the world, the beginning of humanity. And as we go along, I want you to think about humanity's literal proximity to God. Okay, so in the Garden of Eden, how close were Adam and Eve to God? Very close. Right, exactly. They were with God. All right, so go ahead and write with God under that dot. And then the second dot is representative of Genesis 3. And what do we find in Genesis 3? The fall of man, right? This is when sin entered the world. So you can go ahead and write fall. And how did this change our proximity to God? Separate. Right. So we are separated from God because of this sin. This is the opposite of what we were created for. As I just said, this is our fundamental problem. Our unholiness presents us, prevents us from being with God. And we need a holiness from outside of ourselves because we don't have it in us. So immediately after the fall, 
God sets his rescue plan in motion. He's not abandoning his creation. And who is the accomplisher of this rescue plan? <laughs> Guys, you got to talk to me. Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> right. Okay. So his death purchased us from that bondage of sin. And like I said, his holiness gets credited to our account. This is the good news of the gospel. We're no longer estranged from God, but we're in right standing with him. So above that third dot, write the word redemption. And then below it, write reconciled to God. Relationship with God is once again possible through Christ. And then that final dot can be labeled glorification. This is the very end of the story when Christ returns and establishes God's kingdom in fullness. And at this point, friends, what will our proximity to God be? With God, correct. We will be back with him face to face the way that he intended. This glorified state will be even better than Eden because it will be utterly secure. To be in his presence and to see his face is the consummation of our human existence. We may not think about that on a normal Thursday, but this is why we were created, and this is what we are looking forward to. Now, maybe you've picked up on this already, but there are two types of holiness in the Christian life, and it is so important that we understand the difference. Under the timeline, you'll see the terms justification and sanctification. So we're going to look at these two pieces. First of all, justification is considered positional holiness. Being declared right with God through the righteousness of Christ, nothing of ourselves. Now, I'd like you to do a little color coding. Pick up, um, open up those colored pencils on your table and pick a color. Go ahead. And what I want you to do is take that color and either underline or mark the term justification to show that it goes with that. And then where on the timeline does this occur? For the believer. At what point in our lives as a believer are we justified and made right before God? Right, at redemption. Let me see if I have a slide here. Yep. So justification occurs when we encounter Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, in what he has done for us. We put our faith and trust in him. This is a one-time event at the point of salvation. And then, sanctification, let's look at the other definition. This is progressive holiness. This is gradual, growing holiness empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's a process. It's very practical. This does not change our standing before God. But it's the process by which he continues to purify us and refine us to be conformed into his image. So now choose a different color and, and mark or underline the word sanctification. Okay, where is this happening on the timeline for the life of a believer? 
What do you think? Yes, right. So it should look like this. Sanctification begins at the moment of conversion, and it will continue until we are with him. This is the entire rest of our lives on earth. So here's the connection. I told you earlier that the goal of practicing spiritual disciplines is holiness. Think about this carefully. What type of holiness are we talking about? Is it justification or is it sanctification? Yes, it's sanctification. What might happen if we get those two mixed up? Think about this. Think about how it would affect your thoughts and your actions if you think that your activity or inactivity is affecting your justification, or we could say your salvation. It depends on me and not on you. Exactly. That's exactly right. And suddenly it depends on you instead of Christ. And that's not truth. We have been made right with God completely on Christ's merit, not ours. So our positional holiness, our right standing before God, cannot be revoked because Christ accomplished it and Christ secured it. We contributed nothing to this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That work is finished. I hope that's security for you. But our sanctification, however, is a different story. It's impossible to grow in holiness without the Holy Spirit working in us. That's part of this. But we also have a responsibility. Will we cooperate with this process or will we resist it? (laughs) Sanctification is worked out in the context of relationship with God. And you know how relationships work. Each person needs to contribute for it to go well. And then when that happens, we experience joy and intimacy. But it takes both parties willing to contribute. So consider a marriage relationship. A husband and wife are bound together by legal union, right? You sign that paper, it's official, and you are bound together. But the quality of their relationship is subject to change, right? They may love and be committed to each other, but if they don't actively display that love or work diligently on that relationship, their enjoyment of one another is going to be kind of low. It's going to feel like drudgery. Think of that as communion, the quality of their relationship. But even if their communion is lackluster, so you have these ebbs and flows, right? This is normal. Does that change their legal union? No. If you're in a slump with your spouse, Does that mean you're not married anymore? Of course not. Of course not. The legal union stands. Do you see the connection? When we don't invest in our relationship with God, the quality of our communion will be low. That's just a fact. And we're also not going to really grow in holiness or be conformed more and more into his image. These things go hand in hand. But a few points to take away from this, and this is... This is where the rubber meets the road. The first is, when we experience poor communion with God, 
we need to remember that we are absolutely secure in Christ. That union does not change for the believer. Your salvation is not on the line because you're having a bad day, because Christ finished that work. And the second is that the ebb and flow of your communion does not invoke God's favor or displeasure of you. This is where I get hung up. We know we can't earn our salvation, right? We're like, okay, I can agree with that. But boy, do we try to earn his favor. So on those days when we're high, we start thinking, okay, I'm doing all right. Yeah, God must be pretty pleased with me. And when I slump, man, he's probably up there just sighing and shaking his head and marking off my report card. That's not true. You are always a recipient of God's favor because, again, you are in Christ. He is pleased with his perfect son, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so this ebb and flow is not altering his disposition towards you. So what should our response be when we fail? We go to shame, guilt, right? I can't believe I did this again. Like, why am I so bad at this? Like, why don't I love Jesus more? Obviously, I can't even keep it together. I can't even... You fill in the blank. Or maybe it's resignation. Like, I'm so over this. Like, I just give up. I'm not even going to try anymore. But as we grow in holiness and the longer we walk with the Lord, we begin to learn that the correct response is simply repentance. He doesn't want to punish you for your weakness. He wants you to bring your weakness to him, your frustration to him over and over and over again. Do you understand that his sufficient, in his sufficiency, he delights to meet you in that place? He doesn't expect you to be so awesome. That's something we put on ourselves. And the more we actually receive his mercy and grace, We're like, oh, wait, maybe he actually means what he says. And that begins to reciprocate this pattern. So even if you still have ebbs and flows in your relationship, you begin to just turn to him a little quicker the next time. Because you know what? He didn't smack you upside the head. He received you in grace and said, okay, the sacrifice of my son has covered your inadequacies, so let's start fresh. My mercies are new each morning. God has not left us in the dark on how to cultivate this growth of holiness. So we are going to, we want to continue to work forward, but from a place of utmost security. That's why I started with all this. You need to understand this does not affect your standing before God. So how do we participate with the Spirit? Would you open your Bibles um, to 1 Timothy 4 with me? And if I could have somebody read verses 7 to 10, please. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tales. Rather, train yourselves to be godly. Physical training is of some value. 
but godliness has a value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance, and for this we labor and strive, that we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, and especially of those who believe. Okay, thanks Amy. In this passage, godliness is essentially synonymous with holiness. I'm sorry. 1 Timothy 4, 7 to 10. Yeah, so where you see godliness here, just think holiness or sanctification. And look at verse 7 again. In the second half of that verse, what is the command? Train, right, train yourself. This word and the following verse... Use the analogy of an athlete. I won't even bother you with the original language because it's intense. It's about an athlete who commits to this rigorous training so that their body is strong and in top working condition. The athlete doesn't just wake up one day in the best shape of her life. We know this, right? But she has to commit to a regimen that moves her towards the goal. And the cost of time and effort is worth the benefit. The huge difference with our sanctification and that of an athlete is that we have the Holy Spirit within us. We are not abandoned as orphans, but have the very presence of God in us. So I hope you see these parallels, though. The only path to spiritual maturity, to growth, to closeness with God, to holiness passes through the way of the spiritual disciplines. There is not a shortcut. The athlete that just pops diet pills and only works out when she feels like it is never going to enjoy the benefits of the one who is disciplined. And somewhere along the way, we got in our heads that receiving God's grace means that we do nothing. And I think this is because that's true in salvation. We talked about that. We're not contributing. But when it comes to sanctification, that's a different story. We do participate. Dallas Willard says it this way. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. We cannot earn God's favor. We cannot earn the right to holiness. But, but that does not mean inactivity. That doesn't mean we do nothing. So, for those of us who would rather eat cookies than work out, I have another analogy for you. I like to research things, particularly so that I can make informed decisions. So this could be anything, okay? It could be, like, natural remedies for my kids' allergies, or it might be... I have to buy a new sweeper, so like I need to research it, okay? And I'm kind of like haunted by this fact that there may be some information out there that I haven't taken in yet, and it would influence my decision. Like, I don't want to pick the wrong sweeper. I've got to like make sure I read all the consumer reports. This is a good thing, but obviously you can see how it becomes a little obsessive. Um, I realized a while back this also applies to recipes, oddly enough. So I would make a new chocolate chip cookie recipe, and we would, my family would love it. And I'd be like, great, you know, this is it. The search is over. Like, this is our go-to recipe. And the next time I'm going to make cookies, I'm like, you know, like, maybe I should just get online and see if there's anything else out there. 
you know, maybe someone figured out a shortcut or a new secret ingredient. Like, I might need to just get a leg up on this process. <laughs> it's just like utter foolishness, okay? Yeah. And I know some people are really opinionated about whether your butter is melted or softened or what ratio of white sugar to brown sugar we're using. But at the end of the day, chocolate chip cookies pretty much follow the same procedure, right? You cream the butter and sugar, you add in your eggs and vanilla, dry ingredients gradually, and then you fold in your chocolate chips. This is a means of grace, and I would do well to just align to it instead of constantly questioning it and looking for another way. And when it comes to training ourselves onto holiness, God has given us that chocolate chip cookie recipe. He's given us the means to the end. So throughout the scriptures, we see commands and practices of the people of God that have been used for centuries to draw near to him. He's given us a way. And so these are the three we're going to focus on, as we've said, scripture, prayer, and discipline. I'm sorry, scripture, prayer, and fellowship. There are a long list of spiritual disciplines. If you Google it, you might real, really get overwhelmed. But what we're looking at here is the three, what I would argue are the most foundational. Like this is where we've got to start. These are the pillars of our relationship with God. So like I said last week at the brunch, if you came in here looking for a quick fix, it's not here. You're not going to find it. Instead, we're going to gently guide you back to those well-worn paths of all the saints that have gone before us. This is what it looks like to cultivate holiness. This is what it looks like to walk with God, to know him, to actually enjoy him, and to let yourself be changed by him. Closeness and conformity. What we do today cultivates a deeper communion with God here and now. But it's also preparing us for eternity. When we will enjoy him face to face, we will finally be made whole in his presence. So I've thrown a lot at you this morning. We're going to just take a couple minutes and digest it a bit. I have a self-evaluation on the next page for you. I think it's on the next page. This is not a test, okay? Don't stress out. Think about it like just opening yourself up before the Lord and asking him like, hey, would you just show me? Like show me where my weak spots are. Show me the places that you have worked in my life and I see your hand. And just bring this before him and ask him what he wants to show you. Okay, I'm gonna give you a couple minutes. I'll turn some music on. So